Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week I'm joined by sommelier Lauren Noel, who is also the general manager and wine director over at the Market Italian Village here in Columbus, Ohio. She's somebody who I got to kind of know a, a little bit just through the wine list that they have over there at the restaurant. And, you know, somebody I wanted to have on for quite a while and was able to reach out to her. And, you know, she was happy to come on the podcast. We had a really awesome conversation just about her career and how it got started. And she wound up working at uh, Watershed Distillery for a good chunk of time and kind of learned, you know, cocktails. And that was kind of like her first involvement. And then it kind of progressed to wine and she wanted up passing the WSAT level three. So we talk about that, kind of differences between that and the court, her opinions on the court and kind of where it is now. Also kind of future plans on if she, you know, plans to continue with testing and expanding her knowledge base and all that stuff too, and how she constructs the wine list there. They do a really awesome thing at the Market Italian Village on Sundays. It's called Sunday Supper, three, four course kind of meal for 35 bucks or something like that, kind of flat rate prefix style. I might be getting the pricing wrong. I'm not sure, but it's a really good deal. But they also do, uh, as part of that, half off bottles of wine. So everything on their wine list, their bottle list is half off that day. So you can go in, get some great wine, um, pretty much for like retail price, which is awesome and kind of unheard of. So if you haven't checked out the Market Italian Village, I definitely recommend doing so. And even more so if you're into wine uh, on Sunday before kind of the work week kicks off and everything. You can get uh, a great bottle of wine and split it with some friends and everything before uh, everybody has to go back in the office or, or online or whatever on uh, that following day on that Monday. So you can follow her on Instagram. It's at Lauren Noel 42 and also at themarket.iv uh, is for the restaurant page there. So you can follow us on Instagram too as well, at Spoon Mob. Uh, we're on Twitter and Facebook, but mainly use the Instagram Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Spotify is like follow um, now and, and so is like Apple, but some of the other platforms are subscribed. So whatever the button that is, make sure you do that. So you always get the latest updated uh, feed. So new episodes just come right into your podcast player, podcast app, whatever you use. So you won't have to go searching for them or anything. Make sure to check out the website, spoonmob.com. We have all the pages up there where your contact information, where you can find everybody who's been on the podcast, different food photos um, too as well. Kind of got it broken down in a couple categories. So make sure to check that out if you haven't. We're kind of always updating that. But without further delay, this is the conversation with general manager, wine director, and sommelier, Laura Noel over at the Market Italian Village here in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, uh, taking some time out of one of your days off here to do it. Wanted to have you on for a while uh, since we had Chef Carlos on, who you work with. He mentioned you were going through a lot of the the wine stuff and really just deep diving kind of into it. We try and space out those episodes so we're not featuring the same restaurant back to back or something like that. So I want to give some space. That's kind of how I first learned about you. You know, you guys do a cool thing at the market with half off bottles of wine on Sundays and everything like that. I don't want to get to all that too, but we'll go all the way back to the beginning because uh, that's where I always like to start with everyone. Kind of how did you first get started with wine? I mean, that's usually not everybody's kind of first career focus. So I'm always curious as to how somebody winds up in the industry that they're in now. Thanks for uh, having me on. I'm super excited. I mean, I've been working in the restaurant industry since I was like 15 as far as bartending goes, I turned 21 and started working in the cocktail bar industry. We didn't have a huge wine program at Watershed, but 
you know, we definitely focused a little bit on that, just being like a little bit more casual, fine dining. And it piqued my interest. I definitely failed the first wine quiz I took at Watershed. I think I got maybe two questions right. <laughs> um, one of them being, is Pinot Noir red or white? It just seemed like this world that I hadn't really like entered yet. I got really excited about it. I kind of found out about, you know, the SOM exams and like the different paths you can take. So I just dove in and took the intro uh, exam with the Court of Master Psalms and was like, oh my God, this is awesome. Just kind of snowballed from there. The intro exam, I definitely like went out to a bar until like 3 a.m. the night before and then took it and some, thank God, passed. <laughs> but <laughs> no, it's been fun. And so basically I had signed up to take the certified in March of 2020. And the week that everything shut down, I was in California I was supposed to take everything. They canceled the night before. And I was like on a plane back, just like, oh my God, like restaurants are over. What the fuck am I going to do? <laughs> but I, my friend had recently taken the um, WSET, WSET exam. Everyone calls it something different, but she had taken the spirits one and was like, hey, you might be interested in this. They have a wine program also because the court had canceled any and all you know, examinations and classes for the time being because of the pandemic. So I went the WSET route and that's really when like my like wine career kind of like sparked. Like I actually, I was running, um, coast up in Dublin, which is a newer wine shop and wine bar that had opened. I wanted to like, just be more around wine rather than I love cocktails and I love like the restaurant industry, but I felt like I was really missing that experience of just like being hands-on with wine. So I moved over to the wine bar that really like helped me just get my feet wet of like actually understanding wine. So you're around it every day. I think that's incredibly helpful, but I started taking the WSET route. I'm currently in the diploma level, which is the level four. I'll probably eventually go back and finish the certified now that they're offering those again and all of that jazz, but we'll see. But yeah, that's kind of how I got started. I mean, I've been in restaurants for a while and it just kind of was just this natural progression of bartending or serving then bartending. And I was like, well, I haven't learned about wine yet. So let's check that out. So did you start working like in restaurants in high school and stuff? Yeah, I worked at Subway when I was 15. I was a sandwich artist. I still am. But then I had started working at this like family owned restaurant in the town I went to high school in. And that was kind of like, oh, I really like this. I worked every job there. I was a host, bar back, busser. I worked in the kitchen also. I just kind of wanted to like learn everything. Um, I was really interested in it. I don't know why. <laughs> I just kind of fell in love. Like I, it's always something new, which, you know, I just talked to my AGM the other day and I was like, you know what, when I was like younger, I loved the restaurant industry because I was like, I don't want to work in a cubicle. Like you do the same thing every day. And now I'm like in the restaurant industry and it's like, it is always something new. Um, it keeps it interesting for sure. What was the hardest sandwich to make when you were at Subway? What's the one thing like somebody would come in and order and you're just like, ah. Oh. The tuna salad there, like I had this aversion to mayo for so long because it came in these like 10 pound bags that would like, one fell over one time and it was just a nightmare to clean up. And like that sandwich was just like the bane of my existence because of that incident. But we got over it once I learned that aioli is mayo. So once you get done with high school and everything, did you wind up going to college? And if you did, what were you originally thinking about going for? What were you kind of originally pursuing? 
so I actually, when I turned 18, I left the restaurant I was working at and moved down to Cincinnati. I wanted to stay in the restaurant industry. I mean, at 18, you don't have many options. I think I applied at Bed Bath and Beyond and was like in the interview, just like, why the fuck am I here? I don't know. I don't want to do this. I was in design school for like city planning and like urban planning. God, that was a while ago. But yeah, I wanted to focus on like sustainability and like how cities are being built. And a lot of times gentrification is like an issue with that. But so definitely still had like one foot in the restaurant industry, but was more focused on attempting to finish this degree. But I worked at a couple like restaurants when I lived in Cincinnati, mainly like worked in the kitchen. And I moved back up here. And when I started at Watershed, I was like, I'm going to be a bartender forever and left school because I'd started at OSU to kind of finish that like urban planning degree and just dove right in. I was like, I want to learn everything I can. That's when I started getting interested in wine. I had just turned 21, but I actually just went back to school. I'm finishing a psychology degree right now. Yeah. I want to be able to like put the two together. I have no plans of like leaving the restaurant industry, but I mean, as we've all seen for the past two years of this pandemic, like a lot of things have come to light in this industry. So I want to try as best as I can to kind of bring what I learned from that degree into the restaurant industry. Working at different restaurants earlier in your career and being in the kitchen, was there part of you that thought about like ever becoming a chef or anything like that? Yeah. For a long time, like I wanted to go to culinary school. I worked in kitchens pretty much up until I was 21. Um, I did like a little bit of like front and back of house. A lot of places that I worked at weren't like super highbrow. Like you kind of did a little bit of everything, but it was mainly kitchens. Like I expoed and was a line and grill cook at a couple places, but you know, nothing super crazy. I really started getting into um, the whole like food scene and I wanted to be a chef at one point in my life, but the money is not there. And I mean, kitchens are not the easiest place to make your way in sometimes. So yeah, I was like, oh, front of house. I, that's why I liked bartending. Honestly, like I served for a little bit, but like bartending beverage programs as a whole felt like this happy medium where I still got to like create something. Wasn't necessarily dealing with all of the asshole chefs some places have. But <laughs> So yeah, it kind of felt like this, you know, you get to be creative you get to like make things for your guests, but also it's front of house. So there's some other perks that go with that, I guess. But yeah, you get to make more money. Yeah, exactly. It's a big conversation in restaurants right now. You know, it shouldn't have to be like that. And I think a lot of places are trying to make strides and changing that, but I still think we have a long way to go. So you wind up moving back up to Columbus from Cincinnati. And like you said, you, you wind up at Watershed. What's the origin story there? Did you just go and apply? Did they have like something they posted and they're like, hey, we're looking for people? Or how'd you wind up there? Actually, so one of the managers at the place I'd worked at in high school had hit me up and was like, hey, I heard you're back in Columbus. I'm opening up Watershed. She was the AGM there. She's like, do you want a job? And I was like, yeah, sounds great. I was like working. I think, where the fuck was I working at? I think I was working at like some coffee shop, but also was like a line cook at like bodega or something no not bodega what was that taco shop they owned it's closed now balboa i had just moved back to columbus so i was just kind of like picking up shifts i was like 20 years old just like i don't know what i'm doing but she gave me this opportunity i was like oh man this seems like 
you know, this is like the nicest, one of the nicer places I've ever worked and was really excited to like get my foot in the door there and like start learning some things. There's a little mishap with my ID and everyone may or may not have thought I was 21 when I was 20. And here I am now. (laughs) The birth date was kind of scratched off at the bottom. Yeah. Just happened to lose my ID at a fish concert and brought my passport and they didn't look at the date. So whenever you see somebody use a passport as ID, it's like immediate red flag, which it, it's just, I don't know. It's just like the culture in America because some of the stuff that positions I've worked in, you know, where you're looking at IDs and stuff. And anytime somebody pulls up with a passport, you're like, wait, what? Like, why are you? And you're just immediately like skeptical of this person. And you're just like, what's going on? Why do they have a passport? Not like a driver, not even a state ID. They couldn't spend the 15 bucks and get a state ID. Like what's going on? But when you're at Watershed, you know, you're doing kind of mainly focusing on, you know, bartending, stuff like that. How much of a difference does a specific spirit make in a cocktail? Like Watershed bourbon versus like Woodford bourbon, for example. How much of that do you have to kind of know how much of other things to put in there? Or is it just kind of like fairly standard across the board? I mean, there like can definitely be a difference. Like a lot of reason that people are using a specific, I mean, let's just stick with the bourbon category. Like a lot of, you usually have like five bourbons that, you know, in this city people are using as their like well or cocktail bourbon. People have varying opinions on it, you know based on the profile, but a lot of times like you're mainly looking at price point. And as you know, when you're building out a cocktail, you can't be reaching for like highest priced or like most allocated bourbons or else your cocktail is going to be like 50 plus dollars. There's some differences in things. I think a lot of it's like personal palette and just what you enjoy. I think especially with like simple classics, like Manhattans and Negronis, you definitely can start telling more of a difference. I think when you start going to those cocktail bars that have 20 plus ingredients, it's going to get lost. So it doesn't matter quite as much, but you know, I have my preferences when I make cocktails, but. So with being a woman in a forefront, like bartending position like that, that's a whole separate challenge. I think of not just being a bartender, like, you know, if you're a male bartender, like it's one thing, but then being a woman bartender, I think you have to deal with a whole bunch of extra shit probably that you didn't necessarily sign up for, like you might've kind of known like this might happen, but is that still kind of the case? I know like Hollywood tinkers with stuff and shows and whatnot to kind of portray some of that stuff, but is that still generally the case out there for like a woman bartender? Like there's a whole bunch of extra shit you got to deal with that nobody really tells you about. Yeah. I think that's like a lot of it is like, again, that conversations that have been had, you know, after COVID is like, like, bartenders and servers alone have to put up with a lot of shit from guests, but like females especially get the brunt of it. And like, I think there's like a big push now for like, if someone's acting out, like you ask them to leave. Um, and I definitely think like people still have to deal with that, but I hope that people have a little bit more of an understanding of like, Hey, we're not putting up with this, um, type of behavior anymore. Like we are a bar and there is alcohol involved, which always complicates things, but Unfortunately, like not a lot has changed in that vicinity. We'll get there one day. What's like good bar patron like etiquette? Like what are the like five things like that everybody should just kind of know? I think the big one is just like always remembering that like you were talking to another human. I think a lot of times like people in the service industry get almost like dehumanized and it's like, 
hey, how are you doing today? Diet Coke. Like, that's the thing. Like, there's like always, like, I feel like there's like so many memes about that now, but you know, we're like having a conversation. Like, you don't have to tell me your whole life story right off the bat, but she's like, hey, how are you doing today? Like, simple pleasantries go a long way, I think. Just understanding that, like, you're not the only guest in the building, I think is important too. Like, obviously, like, we are here to make sure that everyone feels like just has a good time and enjoys themselves. But at the same time, like, if we're busy, like there's a lot of people here and I know recently, especially people can get a little frustrated with ticket times and like, you know, being understaffed and things, but for the most part, just treat your bartender or your server. Like you would treat one of your friends. Um, I think just, you know, again, saying hello, being polite. That's really it. You know, there's nothing too crazy. I know everyone's always like, Oh, don't order these like crazy drinks. And it's like, I'm here to make you what you want. Like if you want, a Ramos gin fizz, I'm not going to complain. It might take me a second, but it's really just, you know, be polite. Like we're all human, like just a little bit of respect goes a long way. I think. Is there any drink that somebody will order that even though, you know, maybe it's a, it could be something that frequently gets ordered or whatever, but you're still kind of always like, "Mm, really, that's what you're ordering kind of thing. I mean, I did have this one moment at the bar a couple of weeks ago where someone ordered a sex on the beach And I I had to like turn around and look it up because I wasn't sure like what combination of like fruit juices went into it. I had this, one of our newer bartenders like came up. She's like, I don't know what this is. I'm like, well, let's look it up. Cause I know it's like pineapple and peach schnapps or something, but it was just kind of like, shit, I don't know what that is (laughs) like specifically, but yeah, that's, that was kind of the first for me that I'd been like, Oh, interesting. (laughs) So when you're at Watershed, like you mentioned, eventually they kind of have this like wine tasting thing happen and and you're able to sit for the intro exam. Was that something that you always thought you would take eventually anyways? Or was that just really like spur of the moment? Like, oh, this is something available to me. I might as well just kind of do it. It was more like Watershed was really like the place that kind of like opened my eyes to like, oh, there is this whole other world of like beverages out there and you know going through like a pretty intense bar training like was getting more comfortable with cocktails and like still felt like I had a long way to go but it was just kind of like oh here's this class you can take that's like two days and it'll that sounds interesting to me I suppose and it just kind of was like all right I'll just sign up and do it did you study at all no (laughs) not a chance but you still pass first try right yeah, I, I passed. The intro is pretty, I hate saying things are easy because, you know, I work in the restaurant industry and I'm around things a lot. So I did have that advantage. But yeah, I like read through the book, I think like a couple of days before I'd had like a couple study sessions with my friend Mitch, who I was taking the exam with, but like, half the time we were just like, ended up watching like Netflix or something. because he was my next door neighbor. <laughs> but I've definitely studied more for other exams in my life than that one, but. Was there any part of it that was like difficult or was there any question that like was on there and you're just like, "Uh, why are they asking this? Like, I don't even know where I would even learn this from. I think the only part that I was like, oh shit, was when I got to any question on Australia, because at the time, like in my head, Australian wine was yellowtail. And I think that's like a lot of people's perception of Australian wines like oh yellowtail and it's like no Australia has come to be one of my favorite like areas for wine and I was just like oh my god 
what are these words? Like, I was just like, I don't know what any of these regions are. I had like totally skipped over that section when I was like cramming through the book the night before. They only have like one or two questions on it. But I just remember being like, there's other wine regions besides Europe. <laughs> like, imagine that. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of the big one. So when you eventually go to Coast Wine House in Dublin, I know you mentioned that you wanted to be more hands-on with wine, but how did that opportunity come about? Were they looking for somebody and you just kind of applied or knew somebody to get you in there? Uh, it kind of happened on accident, like a lot of things in my life have, but my friend and coworker Kit, who worked on the distributing side with Watershed and Sales, the owner had reached out to her being like, hey, would you like ever want to help consult on like our bar program? Because that's something like our sales reps would do. They'd help write menus and things like that. And she had known that I, she had a background in wine as well and knew that I was kind of starting to get into that. And she was like, oh, well, let me talk to Lauren. Like she might be interested in helping you. So I actually started as more of a consultant. I was still at Watershed and I was just kind of like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm going to help you out, I guess. And I was just like, oh, this is really cool. Like you, once I like learned more about the concept, like, I was just like, this could be a really good opportunity for me to like learn about wine. You know, like I said, at Watershed, we had like a pretty pared down wine list, but I wasn't tasting wine every day. I wasn't involved in that as much. So I was like, this is a really good opportunity for me to kind of like take that next step and really get into the wine industry. I ended up just taking a full-time like GM bar. I was technically running the kitchen there too. It's pretty small. So it was just kind of like, did a little bit of everything, which is my style. Like I like, I don't know. I'm just interested in everything. So I was like, whatever I can do to help I'm down for. So yeah, it just kind of worked out. And I was working there. We opened in November of 2019. And then in March, you know, we had to close because of the pandemic. And we just, I literally was on the flight back from San Francisco because I was, you know, again, supposed to take that exam. And Dustin was just like, Hey, we're going to start doing online wine. We're going to do deliveries. Like, let's get this website built. And I was like, cool. Like we're pivoting and it went really well. I got to drive around listening to wine podcasts, like for hours on end. I think that's probably the only reason I passed any of these exams. But yeah, that was, that was kind of the wine bar. I mean, a lot of it was unfortunately, like we were trying to come up with these different ways to survive during, you know, COVID and it taught me a lot about pivoting and just coming up with things spur of the moment, but we made it through. Coast Winehouse. I mean, I kind of looked them up the other day just because I'd never even really heard of it up until I was doing some research for this. And like the wine list is pretty eclectic. Was it always that way? Like how involved were you in shaping that a little bit or? Yeah. I mean, I helped build out that initial like wine selection and, you know, Dustin had a big focus on, you know, West Coast wine, California specifically, like that was kind of like the vibe, so to speak, that we were, you know, just a relaxing place where you can just come in, grab a seat on the couch. I myself at the time was not, and like we joked about it a lot, was not a huge fan of California wine, but it did help me find like there are some really great producers out there that aren't just producing butter or Chardonnay. And that like definitely opened my eyes to that. But it was cool because like I felt like we complimented each other well where like he kind of brought this experience of like living out there or I mean visiting a lot and I was like okay I've got like Europe and everywhere else covered (laughs) so it was cool it was like a nice little 
conglomerate of everything. Um, a big focus we had, and we just wanted people to try new things. That was really what it came down to. Like we had some of the things people always gravitate towards, but we got a lot of people to try Gruner for the first time. And that was super fun. We always, our goal for 2020 was to make more people drink Riesling because everyone thinks it's sweet. And like, there are really great sweet examples, but we were like, there's a whole spectrum out there if you just try it. So that was kind of our thing. Like that was the opportunity of having like this tasting, like bar tasting area and the shop was that like you can be like, oh, before you buy it, if you want to like try something similar, you know, we've usually got a bottle or two open. Why do you think California wines were not like where you started? Like it seems like a natural place for a lot of people to start because you're in America already and it's like, hey, this is like our wine country. But for you, it seems like it was the opposite. I think it's because like the first restaurant, like real restaurant that I had worked at was in the suburbs. And like, I just couldn't deal with like the buttery Chardonnay. Do you have a buttery Chardonnay? Do you have a, like, that was like all I was getting asked. And I was just like, God, like we have a whole wine list. That's all you're ordering. I think I just kind of like a lot of people do this and, you know, I've learned not to now, but like you try a really bad example of something once and you write the entire category off. That was kind of like my experience. I'm like, yeah, I probably drank like some barefoot Chardonnay at a house party once and was like, never doing that again. Learned to though. One of my favorite producers is from California. So I think that I had, I definitely had an aversion to it for a while. (laughs) So when the COVID lockdowns kind of happened, you know, you said you guys pivoted there and eventually I think that fall too, you wind up taking the W set level two exam. Were you, as you mentioned earlier, originally wanted to do the certified exam with the court, but just that was all canceled. So you're just like, I'll just do this other one instead. Or how did that kind of come together? Yeah, it was sort of like twofold. So I took the level two when I was still at Coast in the summer. And then I took the level three in the last fall, fall of 2020, I think. At first, like I had pivoted to uh, the WSET because it was like, oh, this is the, like they were offering the level two that you could take at home, like because of COVID. And I was like, well, I can't do anything else right now. So I might as well just take this. And that was like, it was all multiple choice. It was kind of a breeze. And I was just like, oh, we'll just sign up for the next one then. And at that point, like nothing had opened up with the court. They still were like closed down. I had had mixed feelings about the court of master songs, like from the get go. I mean, they had a lot of things happen during COVID that really showed like what their place was about. And it's not about inclusivity. I mean, they had multiple accounts of sexual harassment. Like there was a huge issue with like racism in the court and like that kind of pushed me like completely away from them. Um, when all this started happening, I was just like, the main reason that I got into even taking these exams was one, just kind of like, shit, let's just see what happens. But the other part was like, I was 21. I was a female. And like, unfortunately, like in the wine industry specifically, like if you don't have these certifications, like no one cares. And it's really hard to like, learn. I think that a lot of them do offer a good educational backbone, but they're definitely like, we've gotten to a point where it's like, you have to have these certifications or you are like nothing air quote (laughs) in the industry. And that never really like sat right with me. I definitely think they help. And there's like a ton of talent and hard work that goes into getting these certifications, but like the wine industry is not accessible. It's really hard to get your foot in the door and it's expensive. Like 
these exams are not cheap. And like, if you're not working somewhere that can help you pay for them, like it's really hard to like try to balance like working, studying and trying to pay for these things. That's why I said earlier, I was like, I don't really know if I'll go back and take the certified, like they're definitely working on changing some structure within what they're doing, but I don't know if they've done enough personally. I don't know. Like I, I think the wine industry has a long way to go and like being more accessible to people. Like it's very much, there's a lot of gatekeeping and like, Oh, you haven't had this $2,000 wine. Like you don't know what you're talking about type of mentality. And it's like the people who work in this industry can't even afford to drink half of the things that they are learning about. And like, there's this huge like disconnect with that, which I've always found really interesting of like, Oh, I'm paying all this money to take this exam to sell a bunch of wine that I'm probably never even going to get to drink. So I think, I don't know, there's a balance, but I think places like WSET, I think do a better job of trying to just like WSET is more geared towards education and like sales. I would say like, it's not so much like if you want to be a SOM on the floor, like running a wine program, there's a lot to learn with them, but the court is really the one examination that like, really gets you prepared for that, I think. How do you think the wine industry can change to be more inclusive, you know, especially for women sommeliers who there's not a lot of women sommeliers at the top levels of whatever organization you want to pick apart, whether it's the court or WSET or whatever. Like what I am finding through doing this podcast is there's a lot of women sommeliers at what would be perceived at the lower levels, the level ones and twos and stuff like that. But there's clearly a divide where somewhere between level two and like level four, something happens to where a woman who's pursuing kind of these degree certifications and everything eventually says, I'm not going any farther. I don't know what that is because I'm not a woman. I haven't had that experience myself. But but is that am I on to something there with that? And then is there anything that can be done that's fairly obvious or? Yeah, like just talking to like my female friends in the industry, a lot of people that I've talked to recently, it's been, especially with the court, it's been because of how they've handled these like sexual assault issues. Like again, like that, just all of the things that they've like royally fucked up in the past few years. Like a lot of people are just kind of like, you know what? I'm good. I've got my certified. I don't really want to continue with this. And I think too, it's like this like matter of like representation when I can't remember the exact number now, but I think it's like, there's maybe 28 women master song and like seeing that, like it kind of feels, it just feels like why, (laughs) like, I don't want to do that. It's a boys club. I think a lot of people maybe have that mentality on it. And like, it is cool to start seeing like a lot more women. I know the court is working on potentially having more people of color on their like boards and things. And like the people actually making some of these rules. And I think that's super important, but really it comes down to like a almost like restaurant by restaurant level. It's like, if we want to see other women succeed and like just other people who maybe don't have as much opportunity as us, like we have to be able to like make things more accessible. And like, I think a lot of that comes from people who have, you know, taken some of these exams. Like I've gotten a lot of help from people who have previously taken sat for the master's exams. Like Greg Stokes has you know, blind tasted with me countless times. And that's super helpful for me. And I think that's really how we begin to make things more accessible is just by like offering more of like a community aspect to it and like trying to get other people kind of like involved with 
these things as well. Not just being like, I'm the only one that can know this information. Cause I'm very much of the belief that like for my staff, it's like the more everyone knows the better off we are. Like, I don't want to be the only person that knows everything about the wine list. Like, yes, that's inherently my job, but like the more I can teach my staff and the more that they can like be involved in that process, the more they know and the better off like our wine program is as a whole. So I think that's kind of like the big step is just education and getting people involved. You were saying with these really expensive bottles of wine that, you know, if you're a sommelier at the upper levels, you're expected to know flavor profiles, the whole story and everything, but you might not, like you said, actually have yourself. That seems like an easy fix where it's just like, well, let's stop doing that (laughs) and, and focus on things, you know, and, and match it with kind of the average person's, you know, buying power. And I know there's a lot of stats out there that say most people won't spend any more than like 20 bucks on a bottle of wine. But I mean, I think even if you took the 50 to $500 range there or something like that, that might make way more sense for people versus something that's, you know, this bottle that's $3,500 that nobody's ever going to have or whatever. That seems like a natural fix, but is that something that they would even be open to doing? Or is it they want the prestige level. Yeah, I think, and I mean, it's kind of twofold. Like we take these exams to understand wine as a whole so that even if we haven't tried a wine, we can accurately describe it. And that's like a big part of these exams, um, which is always going to be super helpful. And the main point is like, no one can try every wine, but at the same time, like you're saying, it's like the average person is not going to be drinking these really like high level, like crew burgundies and even champagne, even though there's a lot of great like growers champagne that are right around a hundred bucks restaurant price, like most people don't even touch that. And I think a lot of people are starting to like on their wine list, trying to shift to that more like entry level price point of like the average person is when they go out, they're not going to spend more than 60 bucks on a bottle. And like for retail, most people aren't going over 25, like you said. So I think we're definitely seeing more like wine bars pop up that have that more like approachable and kind of just like easy drinking atmosphere that doesn't feel as like stuffy. And there's definitely a place like people are always going to want Grand Cru Burgundy <laughs> and they're going to want growers champagne and they're going to want all of these things. And there is a place for those. But I think as a whole, like the wine industry, especially in Columbus was almost like non-existent. Like we have, you know, great places like the refectory and, that have been around for a while. And I think now people are finally like, oh, wine's cool and I can actually afford it. So you mentioned too the court, like they're kind of redoing their board and everything. I think they put like three of the 28 women master psalms like on the board. Is that something that for you and the people that you know, women in the industry, is that something intriguing that might get you back? into with taking exams with the court and everything or is it kind of like a time will tell let's see kind of what changes they actually make yeah i'm kind of like we'll see i definitely think that i will end up taking it just because kind of like i was saying it's like you pretty much almost have to have these certifications but like i mainly a big thing for me like i'm also signed up to take the certified specialist of wine exam later in the year i just kind of want to see how all of the different examinations work Cause I think you can like learn a little bit from that. So I have, I have like an interest in just seeing like the formatting of it. Like I know what the format is, but like, I feel like until you actually take it, you won't really see that. But I think for, I, I've talked to a lot of people and like for 
most like that step, they definitely, the court is definitely taking steps to make people want to come back. But I think it's still kind of like that waiting game of like, okay, you're saying that you're focusing on like inclusivity and, you know, promoting people who don't have as much opportunity as others into this. And I think it's just kind of like, all right, like we'll see what actions you take and go from there. But what are the price points for the exams? They may have changed. I'm pretty sure they may have just gone up in price, but for the court, the intro and the certified, I think are right around 600. And then they just go up from there. WSET is a little bit different. I think they have a level one, which is like $200, but I don't know anyone that's taken that. Like most people just skip to like two or even level three. Um, Two is like, I think 500 level three was a thousand. And then the diploma in total is almost like $7,000. And that's not including wine that you're tasting along the way. That's literally just exam fees. And you get a class with those as well, which is why I think WSET is like a little bit more expensive because not only are you taking the exam, but like you do have a weekly class and like, depending on which exam it is, it ranges from like three months to like six meeting times, just kind of depending. But so you do have that extra layer of like education and support, but I mean, they're not cheap. So so to be clear, so you're saying for the W set to get all the way through level four, it will cost roughly seven grand to get all the way through that. Yeah. It's like six or 7,000. Yeah. I mean, that's basically if you went to Columbus state probably for like a couple of years, <laughs> how did you kind of wind up at echo spirits? That was like super brief. So I left coast to reopen the market. I am kind of like a workaholic. And if I'm not working like 70 hours a week, I don't really know what to do with myself. So I was running coast and just was like, I'm going to pick up like two shifts a week at the market because it's right next to my house. And why not? And they ended up offering me bar management position. They were like, you have some wine background and we really want to like start pushing our wine program more. So I had like accepted that position. COVID spiked again and we ended up closing down for renovations. And I was just kind of like, hmm, I don't know what to do. So I just like picked up some bar shifts at Echo. I have, you know, I knew people that were working there. So they were just like, hey, if you want to come over for your few shifts a week, that'd be great. I was like, cool. Thank you. You wound up at the market first and then they opened kind of open closed or whatever. How did you kind of, I guess, wind up at the market to begin with? They closed for a long period of time and and they did some pop-up stuff and then Chef Tyler left and, and all that stuff and they kind of rebranded. They finished their renovations too as well inside. So how did you kind of wind up over at the market? Kind of word of mouth. Like I had heard they were hiring and I just kind of popped in and was one of my friends was working there and I was just like, hey, if you need anyone like two days a week, I'm looking for it. And it just, that's how I've gotten a lot of my jobs is just like, Oh, you need someone? Cool, I'll come bar back or something. But yeah, I just kind of popped in one day and was like, are you hiring? Here's my resume. You're the beverage director or wine director? What What is your technically, I guess, official title? My technical title is that I am the GM and beverage director slash SOM. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> A little bit of everything. But you're in charge of essentially building out the wine list, right? Yeah. So what's your methodology for how you construct your wine list? So at the market specifically, it was a little different to start because we, like you pointed out, we had that huge renovation and they had a lot of wine from 
the market side of things that I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. Um, so I kind of had to pepper in some of those to just get them out of back stock. And like a lot of them were like really fantastic wines. It wasn't anything bad, just trying to build a wine program while also utilizing things that are already in stock was definitely an interesting challenge at first with the market specifically. Like we have a huge focus on our farmers and our growers. And like, that's how I look at my wine list. Um, I by no means am like, Oh my God, it is a natural wine list. Natural wine is a whole other topic. But um, I focus more on like the producers, like mostly small production air quote, natural leaning. Like I'm not putting anything on the list that has mega purple in it or is doing like, you know, Kim Crawford level sales. But honestly, like I just kind of put what like I would want to drink with the food. Um, You know, a lot of our wine list is more approachable. There's a lot of sparkling wine, which is selfishly because that's what I enjoy. (laughs) Um, And I think people don't drink enough sparkling wine. There's so many categories out there that aren't champagne that are done in like a similar style at a fraction of the price point. So I just wanted to get people like excited about sparkling wine that isn't, you know, $300 bottle. Um, and it's really just like, you're trying to create an experience at the end of the day. So I wanted to have a range of wine, like not just things that I think are cool or that are this like niche, like, Oh my God, only wine nerds are going to get what this wine is. Like, I'm not trying to pull one over on everyone. Um, just kind of trying to like get people out of their comfort zone a little bit. You know, we didn't have a Chardonnay on the glass pour list until this winter when we put a white burgundy on, um, you know, I want to have like more approachable wines that people are familiar with, but also things that they can kind of be like, Oh, what's that? I've never had it before. Um, you know, we're not trying to like shame people with the wine list and like when they read through it or like, I don't know what a single one of these words are, please God help me. (laughs) Um, I don't want it to be at that level, but I'm also not just trying to like people please everyone and have like the most grocery store wine list that exists. So kind of in the middle, but. When you're constructing like the the glass pour section of a wine list, how do you kind of go about that? Because obviously you probably need to stay within a, a price point, but a bottle of wine is roughly maybe four or five glasses. So a lot of times you can actually make up more profit by going the glass route instead of the bottle route. What's the idea behind constructing that section? So glass pours are obviously what are going to sell the most. You know, a lot of people aren't necessarily coming in and getting just bottles of wine. So you want to construct something that, again, has that like approachability, but maybe with like a couple things that are interesting. And the price point really is what is the main driver for the glass pour list. Like if it were up to most people, they would be pouring ridiculous things by the glass for like you know, $30. But I think Columbus is kind of to the point where like for more fine dining restaurants or like casual fine dining, like you're looking at, you know, a 10 to $18 glass pour, 10 being on the very low end. Ours are roughly like 12 to $18. And I I think it depends on where you are. Like if you're in the short North, like a lot of glass pour lists are more in that like eight to $10 range. When I was up at coast, I mean, we were pouring a $22 cab by the glass and no one batted an eye. I think a lot of it is like, you have to look at like your clientele and where you're at. So price points, like the big driver with that. And then from there, you kind of look at like seasonality, you know, if it's the middle of summer, the red list is not going to be all Syrah and cab based. Um, As you move into winter, like 
you know, our sparkling list dropped a little bit while our red wine list kind of grew in size. So like seasonality, price point are like the big things that you look for. And then mainly just like what fits with your vibe of the restaurant, essentially. Like if you're an Italian restaurant, you're not going to usually be putting a bunch of like Argentinian wine on, but I have seen that before. So like, I think sometimes people will put something on their wine list just for like the sake of putting it on there, which isn't always a bad thing, but you do kind of want to fit with like what your style of wine program is. So that's at least how I've built our program out. But what's your major issue with natural wine? I, okay. So I don't have an issue with natural wine. It's kind of just like how, if you go to the grocery store and you're in the natural food section, I'm doing air quotes. I know people can't see that, but like natural doesn't mean anything. Like there's no like inherent, like, okay, to be a natural wine, it has to be this, this, and this. And I think a lot of people are like, oh my God, it has a crown cap. That means it's natural wine, which like, you're probably right. But I think there, it's really just like, I care about the quality of the product, the commitment to creating a quality product. And like a lot of times like natural wine, (laughs) like just isn't that good. Like people are just kind of like, oh, it's natural. So it's good. And you know, there's a million great examples out there, but like I said, our wine list is technically mostly natural wine. So I think there's a place for it. I think it's just a lot of like wine, the wine industry is just trends and what's popular at the time. And right now, like that happens to kind of be, this is really popular right now. And it's not a bad thing. Like I'm really happy that we've moved away from, you know, mass produced mega purple wines to hopefully focusing more on like these like small farmer and vineyard owners and really like focusing on like the sustainability of the wine too, which I think is what a lot of people are looking for when they look for a natural wine. Like I, my background was originally in sustainability and like, it's especially important for the wine industry. Like as we see like climate change and all of these things happening, like people are going to have to start pivoting. Like, I mean, champagne is getting warmer. Burgundy is getting warmer. Like we're already seeing like Bordeaux is like, looking at, and I think has approved a few other grape varieties because like people are anticipating this like change that we are seeing with our climate. And I like to hope that that's why natural wine is like getting its heyday. And I hope that that's why people can keep focusing on like, we want this like attention to detail and this like smaller production wine where people are caring about the land and not even just the land, like their workers as well. Like there was like kind of this huge scandal, like two years, not even a scandal, like two years ago, like people started like finding out that it's like, Hey, people that are picking your grapes and making your wine are not even making like $2 a day. And like, that's sustainability. And like, that's something that I think has gotten like completely lost is that like, you know, we're fair trade coffee and chocolate got its, you know, movement, but like the wine industry needs that because there are a lot of people who, you know, are not being paid even remotely adequately for picking the grapes for the wine that you're enjoying and like focusing on sustainability. And like, that's a huge part that I think is getting missed, unfortunately. And, you know, with that means higher wine prices, but if I can buy something knowing that it's, they're taking care of the land and they're taking care of people that are making it, like I feel a lot better. 
I like champagne. Um, it's probably kind of like my go-to thing, but it's funny. I have Google alerts set up and, and I'll get one like every Friday and it, it's always the same thing. By 2027, there's going to be this leap in demand and there's a shortage and all this stuff. And I'm just like, you guys are just kind of trying to set like the expectation that we can raise our prices. Like you're just doing it five years before it's going to happen kind of thing. Champagne spends the most market like money on marketing than any other wine region with reason. But yeah, they're definitely <laughs> trying to, I mean, with shipping and everything with this past few years, I'm sure we're going to see some pricing changes. I mean, we already are seeing it, but. I pretty much did dry January, violated it a couple times, but the market was like the first place. And then it was like a week later, I think I saw it at like Veritas that had NA wines on kind of your, your list, even by the glass. And they were actually good. Like they didn't suck, which was surprising because I think there's always when everybody talks about NA stuff, everybody goes back to beer and it's like people that, you know, drink NA beer and it's like, it does that even taste good. And even, you know, people are like, no, it doesn't, but I just do it because it's like a habit or whatever. But there seems to be this kind of maybe a, a slight movement anyways to actually making good NA beverages. Is that something that's going to continue or is this just kind of like a, a fad in the moment kind of thing? I hope so. I mean, Ironically, I uh, don't really drink. I'm pretty much sober. I'll have like a glass here and there and I still taste and I spit everything. But I think it's really important that we start offering that. And what you said about that non-alcoholic wine is exactly what I said. I was like, wow, this does not suck. It's like, we've all had those, like, it's like most of them just taste like that shit your mom gave you on New Year's, like the sparkling grape juice. And you're like, this is horrible. Yeah, I can't remember the name. I can see the label. It's a white label. It's like cursive lettering. It starts with an M, I think. Obviously, like we've come a long way from that. And like I even just had over at Veritas and I had some, uh, I think they're called proxies. They basically take verjus and infuse it with like different botanicals, herbs, like fruits and vegetables. And they're really good because that was something like when I, you know, first kind of stopped drinking, like I was like, oh my God, there's like nothing that's bitter or like you miss like all of these like qualities. Like, I'm like, I don't even want to drink wine to get drunk. I just miss like, there's so many cool flavors that happen there that you aren't getting when you get these like non-alcoholic versions. So people are definitely experimenting. I know like non-alcoholic spirits have come a long way. And I think wine was kind of like the last leg. Like I've even had some non-alcoholic beers where I'm like, oh, is this real? Like I like did not believe that it was not that it had no alcohol in it. But I think wine is Unfortunately, like the logistics of that are very difficult. Um, so I think we're getting there and I hope that we can come up with like some new items soon. But like, I definitely am starting to see a lot more on the market than, you know, even two years ago. What wine region or wine style do you kind of gravitate towards the most? Because I think every Psalm has that one region that's like, this is why I'm a Psalm. Like I fell in love with this region. Sparkling for sure, but I feel like that's a cop out. So uh, I love like Alpine white wine from Northern Italy. There's like usually a lot of like herbal character to it. I'm really into vermouth also. That's like my real love is vermouth. So anything that like gives me like that kind of like almost like bitter herbal character to it. I'm like, this is my thing. With COVID and like some wineries opening up where you could actually get their wines, and not all of it going to restaurants and stuff. Was there anything that you came across that you were surprised to see like on the market for kind of like the first time or, or anything like that? There was definitely like 
especially when I was at Coast and working more retail, like we were selling so much wine. Like when everything first shut down, like our delivery days would be like just 20 cases from one distributor. So like that was cool. But we also just like had like a little bit more of the allocated things like you're saying that normally are going to the winery or to other restaurants. Like we got an opportunity to sell some of that. Honestly, I didn't come across anything too crazy, but selfishly, I got some of the PAX wines were more available, which PAX is out of Sonoma. And I just love their stuff. They do a lot of Syrah and they have a really killer Chenin Blanc. So that was cool. So we got many cases of those that normally we do not get. Having spent some time in kind of the independent distillery scene, you know, Watershed and, and Echo for a little bit too, do you think like in Columbus that's going to continue to grow or are we kind of at market saturation where you have watershed and echo and high banks and OIO and can the city continue to support more and more independent distilleries or is it going to wind up kind of like the brewery scene where, I mean, I think we have over 60 different kind of like independent breweries now and it's kind of like at market saturation. I know that we're going to see more distilleries opening up and some of the ones that have been open might end up closing because of that, I don't know. I think the ones that we have do a really good job, but I think we're kind of, we've hit our, you can only go to so many distillery tours. Maybe that's because I've been on. I think we're kind of hitting a peak. Like you said, with like the craft beer scene, like we saw it definitely hit the ceiling at a certain point. And I think we're starting to get there, but there might be room for a few more. Who knows? Any interest in ever doing certified specialist of spirits or the Cicerone certifications? I've definitely thought about it. I'm going to have to finish my master's though, before I even like attempt, (laughs) I put a limit on myself. I was like, you are going to take, once you pass the, hopefully pass the diploma, like you have to take six months off before you touch another certification. You know, like I said, I started out with the cocktail industry and I feel like that's something I've kind of like put on hold a little bit just while I going through all the wine, but I just really love beverages as a whole. Like I think they're really interesting. I've really been wanting to do something with coffee too. I feel like that's like the other side of like the beverage list that always gets, you know, left is like the after dinner espresso or like anything like that. So I definitely am interested in doing like the certified spirits specialist or possibly something with beer, but I definitely think it would be down the road. Cause I think at the end of the day, it's like the more you can understand about all of these things, like the better you're going to be at being a cocktail bartender or being a song. It never hurts to learn more. Yeah, the coffee thing is interesting because there's not, I don't feel like there's a lot of places that have coffee on the menu for like after dinner. And if they do, it's fairly rudimentary. I mean, they're open in the morning. That's when people kind of drink the coffee and everything like that. So, you know, then it's who can operate the equipment if you have the expensive equipment in there and everything too as well. So it becomes kind of a, a challenge. Not that I, you know, I'm a big coffee drinker after dinner or anything, but I don't feel like I see it on the menu a lot in Columbus. Yeah, it's definitely because like you said, like it almost takes an entire other like staff member just to like run if you want to do it correctly. That's for sure. But do you still do any gardening? Right now, my house does not have a yard, but I am going to do a community garden this spring. So I'm really excited about that. That was something I focused on when I was in school. Like I really wanted to help do more like local farms and things which is kind of how I got into the restaurant industry. Like that whole concept is really important to me and just like having that community aspect. 
So I'm definitely excited to like do some community gardens this spring and get working on that because it's very good for you. It's very mentally soothing. (laughs) Are you able to enjoy uh, going out to dinner or do you compulsively check the wine bottle, wine list as soon as you sit down, see what they have? Honestly, I haven't been out in like almost a year. I have just been very busy being in school full time is not, uh, does not leave much room for anything else, but I did get to go to commune, um, a few months ago with some of my friends. It was, it was really nice to just like not have to think about anything. I'm pretty sure we ordered like the whole menu and we're just like, just, you know, kind of bring it out whenever. Um, so that was really nice. I definitely will. I kind I just like watching the buzz of restaurants. Like when I go out, like it's really fun to see like when you are at a restaurant that has that like flow down and like people seem like they're enjoying their jobs. Like it makes me not overanalyze everything, but we've definitely all been to that restaurant that it's just like, Oh my God, this place is like on fire right now. Like it, but then I'm like, Oh my God, like, do you need me to bust tables? Like, can I help you? <laughs> so yeah, a little bit of both, but I've gotten to have some pretty enjoyable experiences lately, but do you still do any painting? No, all hobbies have been dropped. <laughs> Once I started the diploma exams, I just was like, okay, you have no time for anything else. <laughs> Do you think there's a chance that Columbus will eventually not necessarily be like a, a beer town? Or do you think it's always going to kind of be that? And then you'll just have, you know, your little wine click and seltzer click and all this other stuff. I hope that it becomes, I don't want to say like less of a beer town, but just more of a like, all-encompassing beverage town. I think the restaurant industry in Columbus has definitely like taken a hit and there's some really cool spots that have opened up. So I'm starting to feel hopeful again. I just feel like we are a very cookie cutter city. One person does something well and it just kind of seems like we just like copy and paste that. And I think we're finally starting to get some more like, I don't know, just diversity and exciting things happening, which, you know, we're a test market city. So I think that's, partially why like we have a huge campus and like a pretty young demographic so like it's kind of just like oh well this worked in the short north so let's just open up another taco spot and margaritas and whatever Uh (laughs) it's the number one complaint i swear i get for anybody that comes on is like the taco situation in the short north i swear to god it's just really sad because like there's like two good taco trucks in this city that are like real and i'm just like god we just like ruin everything (laughs) i don't know like i'm excited it seems like there's new places opening up that actually have some like character to them and like thought behind them so i'm excited to see what happens i think we've got a lot of people in this city who want it to be cool again and are like really working to make that happen so i have i have high hopes you're pretty avid national park explorer what's kind of the next national park on your list whenever you get some time I don't know. I really, so I've never been to the East coast and I really want to go like up to Vermont and stuff. Mainly I want to see some like cider places because cider is also really cool. Probably somewhere on the East coast. I've been attempting to plan like a week long backpacking trip with some of my friends, but I think we want to go to the East coast, hopefully. Favorite tattoo that you have? I'm trying to remember all of them. Probably. I don't know. I've got some like bumblebees on my arm and they're like really important for the ecosystem (laughs) so I guess that would be my favorite (laughs) at one point I just stopped caring and I was just like I just would like show up for my appointment and I'd just be like I don't know just put something in that spot I'm sure it'll be great 
my tattoo artist is awesome. So what's next for you professionally? Obviously you're going to continue with the W set, maybe do a certified exam down the road, but what else you got on the horizon? Ideally. So like, you know, certifications aside, obviously hoping I get to pass all of those and not have to retake anything, but I'm kind of in line to finish my master's in psychology and finish up most of these like wine degrees. And I really want to be able to like combine the two, like the restaurant industry has, I don't know, we've really taken a beating these last few years. And like a lot of, I don't think the restaurant industry ever was like healthy. You know, people always joke that like opening a restaurant is like the worst investment you can make for many reasons. And I just like, I love the restaurant industry so much and I want it to be a healthy place where people can like thrive instead of, it kind of seems like people just are like clawing their way to like success in it. And, you know, there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of like unhealthy relationship (laughs) things happening, like just like work relationships. I think communication and things can always be better in restaurants. Like we always hear like the angry chef trope where it's like the Gordon Ramsay's of the world. And it's like, that's not cool. Like, I don't want to work somewhere where people are like throwing plates at me. So I think that has like a lot of work and, you know, the pay structure is obviously like a huge issue in restaurants. And I think the big thing for me that professionally I want to work on is I'm focusing on drug and alcohol therapy, which is ironic because (laughs) I run a beverage program. I just think that that's something that like the restaurant industry really struggles with is substance use. And there's nothing wrong with those things happen. There's no shame on any of that, but I just want to be able to focus on creating places that are like healthier and, you know, more supportive of their staff rather than just creating these environments where people almost feel like forced to use these things to get by. I don't know exactly what that looks like yet, but, you know, I'm kind of finishing these degrees just so I can learn more, but something in that realm. I definitely am potentially hoping to open something of my own one day. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. I'm 25. We've got some time. (laughs) This question comes from Chef Nick Gore, who's the chef and owner at Gourmet Pizza here in Columbus, previous guest on the podcast. He left behind a question, how do you know what's enough? You can apply that to whatever you want. You left it vague on purpose. Yeah, I was hoping this question was going to be like, what's your favorite food or something? At the end of the day, you have to listen to what is right for yourself, whether like you're having to walk away from something because you've had enough or you know, you've done all you can. I think a lot of times in the restaurant industry, we tend to be perfectionists. And I think I was listening to Chris Dillman's podcast the other night. And he like said, he was just like his one thing he wish he would have done is like not put so much of his like self on the line when it comes to like working in restaurants. I think that's really what you have to learn in restaurants is like, when has it been enough? Because at the end of the day, if you're burnout, you're not helping anyone and you're not helping yourself. So I guess that's how I take that question. It's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest. And it can be anything. I thought about this for a long time and I've forgotten all of my questions. I guess just like where in an ideal world, like where would they like to see the restaurant industry in the next five years? This question comes from one of our listeners. What's one wine gadget that you've encountered over your career that you think is actually useful for the average at-home wine drinker? These are pretty new, so I don't know if this counts, but there are these things called repours. I don't know if you've seen them. The they're like pretty new to the market, but they're essentially like a way better version of those like air pump stoppers. They essentially like you peel off this little sticker and you put it into the 
top of the bottle, it acts like a cork, but it essentially like absorbs any oxygen in the bottle. And I mean, I use them for blind tasting practice so that I don't have to open 12 bottles every week and then pour them down the drain. You can keep using them for one bottle. So essentially like you can put this in the bottle, let it sit on your shelf for like four months. Um, that might be too long, but like a few weeks and come back to it. I don't really know what the threshold is yet of like how long these last, but I've heard from people that, you know, they've been using them to taste wine and like six months later, they're like, everything's still tasting correct. I think especially for the home drinker, like I've gotten some for my friends because they're like, oh, I drink a glass of wine. And then like, I have this bottle just sitting here and I'm like, we'll use this. Like it'll, you know, definitely keep things good for the next week or so. So I think those are great. You can get them at a lot of like retail spots now. A few more questions for you. We ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who is the biggest influence on your sommelier career thus far? My biggest influence is definitely Josh Gandy. He was my boss at Watershed and he, you know, he's huge in the cocktail industry. He actually like mainly just from always pushing me to like pursue, to learn and be better. And he's done a lot to like promote sobriety in this industry and like just kind of that push for like non-alcoholic options. And like that has been like a huge inspiration for me, like knowing that you can be in this industry and not have to be going out to a bar every night is really important. But I think it's important for everyone to have that person that has pushed them. And he definitely has done that for me. What's your desert island wine? Probably Agripar champagne, because if I'm probably going to die of dehydration, I might as well go out with a bang. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? Person gets stuck at the airport, reaches out to you. Hey, stuck here for a night. Where should I go eat? You guys are closed. Probably Commune. Everyone I've sent there has had a great time. The atmosphere is always awesome. That's definitely on my list. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant. Place you haven't been to, you want to go to. Place you haven't eaten at, but you want to eat at. I've actually never been to Europe. I've been to like China and a bunch of weird places that most people don't get to go to, but I would, they're not weird. I've never been to Europe, so probably Italy. I feel like being a Somme, that's kind of like, you have to do that. Definitely Northern Italy. I just want to go drink all the vermouth and try all the vermouth there. Bucket list restaurant. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've gone to a lot of places I want to go. Okay, this is probably really embarrassing, but my one of my coworkers was in Chicago and they told me that there's a Taco Bell that has a bar in it. And like, I just want to go see what that is. Like, I, it's not like I... <laughs> like there are a million other restaurants that I want to go to, but like, for some reason I am just like so intrigued to like people watch at this Taco Bell that has like, they just put like vodka in a Baja blast. Like, I just want to like, I want to watch that because I'm mind blown by it. <laughs> Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. I've definitely seen a lot of things, most of which I am like not going to share, but I think I've definitely gone to clean the bathrooms before and have walked in on people going at it. I didn't know what to do. And I just like, shut the door and like walked away. And it was just like, no one can go in here. I, like, I was just like, do I bang on the door? It was, it was very uncomfortable. And obviously they very quickly left the building after that, but I had to go and hide behind the bar because I was like, I cannot make eye contact with these people. So yeah, that was one of the worst. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that's, you know, kind of terrible for you, but you just can't help yourself, whether it's down a certain grocery store aisle or fast food or, or anything like that. Wendy's double stacks 
are one of the top five most perfect foods on the planet. Not the junior bacon cheeseburger, the double the double stack. It is that's the one. I think it's just uh it's just a Dave's double, right? Is that what it is? When I worked at Watershed, that who worked in the kitchen and I would literally stand over the trash can eating one on Saturday mornings as like our like pump up for the weekend. Very healthy choice. <laughs> I can't imagine starting my weekend morning with a double burger. We did. And I probably regretted it most times, but. Which of the following wine documentaries would you recommend? Psalm, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Sour Grapes, Decanted, or Blood Into Wine? I think Psalm is interesting. And I definitely think it represents like how much work people put into some of these exams. Like it's not easy. And I think that's helpful. I do think a little bit of it is very like, I don't know what the word I want to use is like glamorized almost like the wine industry really isn't like that. At least what I've experienced is not, but I think that's a good place to start as far as like, I just always get the question. I'm like, Oh my God, are you like that? Those people in the documentary? And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, I have one wine map on my wall. I think that's a good place to start. Which of the following wine movies, Hollywood movies, would you recommend bottle shock a good year, uncorked, or sideways? I've never seen Sideways, and we sold the wine that is in it, and I feel like I really needed to watch it, but probably, I don't know, Bottle Shock. It's funny. It's kind of stupid, but I enjoy it. All right, wine recommendation time. So recommendation, $20 and under for a bottle, $50 and under for a bottle, $100 and under for a bottle, and 100 and over, no limit. 20 and under, probably the Papier Muscadet out of the Loire Valley. It's just really crisp and refreshing. It's my camping breakfast wine. Like anytime I go camping with people, I'm like, hey, you guys have to drink this for breakfast because it's really good. $50 and under. I haven't like bought wine in a while for other than tasting purposes. Um, let's see. I really like Reventos, a sparkling wine producer out of Spain that like left the Cava Dio because they're doing really killer sparkling wine. They start to hit at some other higher end bottles in the like 40 to $50 range, but I would definitely recommend those because they're really awesome sparkling wine. That's like not super expensive as champagne. So that would be that. 100 and under. If you can get a Shaw of Hermitage, there's like that. I don't know. <laughs> I keep going back to sparkling. Probably the Pierre Peters, I think champagne is technically right under $100. So I would say that over 100 any of the like high-end Agripar is my go-to for champagne. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, scene, episode that stands out to you about him the most? If you weren't, is there anybody who was a culinary personality, culinary influencer, that you kind of gravitated towards when you were kind of coming up in the in the industry yourself? I'm definitely a huge Anthony Bourdain fan. I used to watch Parts Unknown every night before I would go to bed. That was just my like falling asleep TV. There's one part that I like remembered it after I watched Roadrunner, like the documentary that came out about or movie where he's in Lebanon and like all of the like violence and war is happening over there. And like he starts talking about how like food is political and like but it still brings people together and like that part just always like really sticks with me because it's like there's political unrest everywhere and like war is happening it's like food is always like that one thing that's going to bring people together and and wine inherently so i don't know that really like that always stuck with me because he's right i mean 
at the end of the day, like that's all we have to fall back on. So where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. I'm at the market currently. And I mean, I don't use social media that much because I'm an old lady, but uh, I have to look up what my Instagram handle is. Lauren Noel 42. I will maybe randomly post a picture of a bottle of wine. I'm trying to use it more, but I just kind of forget. And then at the market.iv for the restaurant. And you guys are open. Uh, Wednesday through Sunday, uh, five o'clock. And then Sunday we do our Sunday supper. So we close a little bit early, but is half off all of our bottles of wine. It's a really awesome experience, the Sunday supper thing. There's not a whole lot of restaurants that are even open on Sundays. Sunday, Monday, pretty much everybody's closed, which is... Part of it, I think, is because of COVID and staffing issues, but it's pretty wild to see some of the places that used to be open on Sunday, even like bars, and like they're closed. And you're like, it's football season and you're closed. Like, it's pretty strange. But yeah, this was awesome. I really appreciate you coming on. We'll be seeing you soon at the market. Yeah, thank you for having me. Good luck with the exams, the degree. Uh, At some point, hopefully you get to take a break from all that. But uh, stay in touch. If you ever need anything from us, feel free to let us know. But we'll, we'll be keeping an eye out on your progress and, and we'll be seeing you soon over at the market. Awesome. Thank you. A big thanks again to Lauren for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her day uh, to come on the podcast, chat about wine and her career and where it's headed and everything. So it's been awesome to have some of these sommeliers on, whether it's, you know, Mark Bright, Chris Dillman, we've had Amanda Moss. Kendi Warden, and we got more, you know, more on the way too as well. So we're super excited for that stuff. It's been pretty awesome to have, especially women sommeliers on too. I feel like kind of an underrepresented group um, within the sommelier community, even though there seems to be more and more women getting into wine and, and taking the exams and everything like that. You don't hear about them as much where the big famous kind of sommeliers are usually kind of men. So it's been really awesome to kind of highlight how women approach wine and, and the different styles and what they look for and everything. And it's been great. They're all super talented. So we always like to support super talented people who we find interesting and that are doing cool things with wine lists and different restaurants and everything like that. So like I said, more stuff on the way. Make sure to follow Lauren over at Instagram at Lauren Noel 42. Uh, you can also follow the restaurant at themarket.iv. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. We're on Twitter and Facebook, but Instagram is the one that we mainly use. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on all the podcast platforms. Also have a YouTube channel. Uh, You can subscribe to that too if you want. We put all the episodes up on YouTube as well. Some people, it's their preferred player. We prefer that you would subscribe to us through Apple or Spotify, but if you like to use YouTube, it's up there and available for you. Appreciate the couple of people that have been writing in. Shout out to Alex, uh, who wrote in a a recommendation and is a listener of the podcast. So we really appreciate you taking some time to send that email into us. Definitely looking into what you recommended too as well and going to check that out and do a little bit of a deep dive uh, on that. So continue to write in. You can either email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com, or if you go to the website, there's a contact portal and you can go ahead and write in questions, comments, feedback. Um, If there's anything you ever wanted to ask a chef or sommelier that you thought of, feel free to send that in. We'll kind of match it up with the best guests that we have uh, upcoming and then uh, shoot you over a quick email whenever that question gets asked too. So we've gotten stuff from people on Reddit and and some stuff direct and everything. So that's been really awesome to incorporate into the podcast and, and continue to do so moving forward. That's it for this week. New episode next week. Appreciate everybody listening. If you're new here, 
welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. And we will talk to you guys next Thursday.